Our scripture focus today is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. You'll make your way there. I'll read the passage in just a moment. I want to speak to you on what it means to make the commitment to follow Jesus. We think about the word commitment, it communicates a strong intention and focus. For example, a relationship commitment is a statement of intended behavior and desired outcomes. And in anything we do in life, the level of the commitment makes all the difference. In just the past 20 years in America, we have seen a 20% decline in the number of people who say that they are affiliated with any kind of church. The trend toward no religious preference at all seems to be the key factor in the decline. You don't have to know a lot about statistics to say that 20% in a decline over 20 years is quite significant. I believe the ultimate spiritual commitment that any of us could ever make is a commitment to follow Jesus as his disciple. Discipleship means personal, passionate devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a difference between devotion to a person and devotion merely to principles or to a cause. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25, says, Now great crowds were traveling with him, referring to Jesus. So he turned and said to them, If Anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, verse 34, salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. Jesus sets forth some conditions of what it means to make a commitment to follow him as a disciple. If you are a learner or a student of Jesus, he is asking of you the ultimate commitment as you follow him. So in the time that we have together, let's take a look at some of the conditions of what it means to make a commitment to follow Jesus. 
The first one comes to us by way of a warning. And that warning is, do not be superficial when you follow Jesus. Verse 25 mentions the great crowds who were traveling with the Lord. At first, the great crowds is just a subtle passing reference to the setting that Jesus was ministering in. Jesus, after all, was popular among the people and they came from everywhere to see him. According to the scripture, he preached the gospel and he healed the sick all over Galilee. And as a result of both his teaching and his miracles, his fame spread. And the crowds wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. They wanted to see what Jesus was capable of doing. And there was a mixture of people in those crowds, undoubtedly. People who were curious and some who were desperate. People who were amazed and some who were hopeful. People who were sincere and wanting to get close to Jesus because they were thirsty and hungry for what Jesus had to offer in his life-giving ministry, while others were mere curiosity seekers, and they were just there to see a show. Jesus was accustomed to those crowds in his public ministry. After all, there was a crowd around him as he delivered the Sermon on the Mount. There was a crowd when he fed the 5,000 men besides the women and the children. There was a crowd when he fed the 4,000 in the Gentile region. There was a crowd when he called Zacchaeus down from that sycamore tree and wanted to talk to him. These crowds were a constant reality in the ministry of Jesus. But here is the issue at hand. There is a difference between being part of a crowd and being a disciple of Jesus. A crowd may be limited to an audience who comes to watch a show or to listen to some words or to observe, but never truly engages. And I believe we see this at times in the mindset of some churches today. There's a book entitled Invading Secular Space, and in that book they wrote, the world is asked to come and see rather than the church going, living, and telling in and through all its normal daily activities and relationships. The temptation is that churches sometimes become more concerned about being attractive to the culture around them so that they can gather a larger audience, they can gather a larger crowd, they can gather more people to come to the church. But the problem is attractionalism in and of itself can actually become an obstacle to the mission of God. And here's why. It may produce self-centered religious consumers rather than Jesus-centered disciples who understand what it means to be committed in following him. In the Gospel of Mark, it says that Jesus had many people following him who were interested because they had never heard such teaching. In fact, crowds were coming from everywhere, and in Mark chapter 4 and Verse 33 and 34, it says he was speaking the word to them with many parables as they were able to understand. He did not speak to them without a parable, but then listen to what it says. Privately, however, he explained everything to his own disciples. Now, I find that phrase, his own disciples, interesting because it can be translated as those who were peculiarly his own. These were the followers who were distinct from others 
because they recognized they had a unique calling from Jesus and they were peculiarly his own. Jesus also encountered a large crowd of people as we read in the call to worship today when he was entering into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. Some of the people who were there were curious and they wanted to know what Jesus was doing. Others were not completely sure about who Jesus really was. Others pretended to follow him, but yet later on, it was proven that they were not genuine followers of his. And then still others opposed him, the religious leaders. They should have known better. This was the Messiah in their sight, and yet they did not. And then I believe among that crowd on that Palm Sunday were some genuine followers of Jesus. There were some disciples who wanted to hear what Jesus had to say and do what Jesus called them to do. It is very easy, however, to pretend to follow Jesus when you're in the audience. It's easier to pretend that you're a disciple than it is to actually follow Jesus with a commitment in your everyday life. And the reason being is that in the audience, you can blend in. In the audience, you can seem like you're a part of a movement. In the audience, you can play the part. But a disciple is required to surrender to Jesus and dedicate their lives in following him. So I want you to see this warning. Do not be superficial when you follow Jesus. But instead, understand the commitment that he's calling you to. Second, you need to count the cost when you follow Jesus. Now, I'm going to make a statement here, and I'm going to say it twice because I think it's so important. Salvation is free, but discipleship is costly. Salvation is free, but discipleship is costly. The only way any of us can be saved is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are sinners and God is holy. Our sin causes us to be separated from God and there's no way that we can close that gap on our own. There's no good works that we can do that can close that gap. There's not enough discipleship and just the actions of the Christian life that can close that gap. Only God could do it through his only son. So God gave his only son to live and to die and to now live again. And it's through the blood of the cross that we are justified or declared righteous in Jesus. So for every one of us, there has to be that moment in time when we move from death to life. When we turn from our sins and we turn to the Savior. And in that moment, God declares us righteous, justified in his sight because of what Jesus has done in his finished work. And salvation is free in the sense that it is completely a gift to us. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith has always been the only path to salvation through what Christ has done for us. However, the evidence of our salvation is a commitment to follow Jesus. 
the fruit of our salvation is our lives as disciples. And I think that's the subject that is before us today in the words of Jesus. And that discipleship is costly. Now, you'll note here that Jesus sets forth several examples in verse 26 to 33. The first one relates to family and even to life itself. So he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother, verse 26, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You say, now, wait a minute. Aren't we supposed to love our families? And the answer is emphatically, yes. But what Jesus does is he provides for us this framework for the motivation of discipleship in order to grab our attention and also to cause us to understand what it means to follow him. Now, obviously, and ideally, we would not want there to be conflict, but we would want there to be continuity between our faith and our family. We would want those two to be in harmony with one another. But the reality is that's not always the case. Sometimes a husband comes to faith in Christ and his wife is not yet saved and that brings a spiritual conflict in the home. Or perhaps a child that was not raised in a Christian home comes to faith in Christ and the parents aren't too happy with what has happened to their son or their daughter. It can also happen in Christian families, people who are professing believers, when a member of that family really takes hold of their faith and begins to live it out and gets serious about being a disciple of Jesus. And that makes those who are simply a part of the audience uncomfortable. Don't want anybody to run the risk of being a fanatic. You know, don't be too serious about this to where it actually impacts your life decisions Let's just be respectable Christians, and that's enough. So you see where the conflict can potentially come in families. Francis Schaeffer was a well-known 20th century Christian apologist and theologian and writer, teacher. And his life and his books uh, impacted an untold number of people uh, for the Christian faith. He was one of the early voices into the movement for life. Um, after Roe v. Wade, Francis Schaeffer was very bold, shaping the worldview and helping Christians understand why we should value life as we do. And Schaeffer was not raised in a Christian home. In fact, when he came to faith, his father did not want him to go to college or to go into the ministry, both of which he felt like God was calling him to do. So the crossroads came when he had to make a decision uh, either to do what God wanted him to do with his life or to do what his earthly father wanted him to do with his life. So he says to his father one day, Pop, give me a few minutes. I'm going to go down into the cellar and I'm going to pray. He went down to pray and tears of sorrow. And after some bargaining with God, that was probably not uh, something we would recommend necessarily. He goes back up the steps and he engages his father once again. and, And Tells him, Father, I've got to go. This is what I have to do. His dad looked at him, and before he walked out and slammed the door, he said, Son, I'll pay for the first semester. It wasn't until many years later that Schaefer's father came to know Christ. 
But he said in that moment of decision, he, in effect, had to declare, I must follow the Lord. And do you know that comes for everybody in their Christian life? That you have to determine for yourself if you're going to be satisfied with just being a part of the crowd and just going through the motions and just being a superficial hanger-on to Christianity, or if you are going to make the commitment in full effect to be a disciple of Jesus. And the point that Jesus makes here is that your loyalty to him has to come before your loyalty to family or even to life itself. And he said, if you don't have that kind of loyalty, you can't be his disciple. The next example is in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, you might remember in this study in Luke that this is actually a reinforcement of Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, where Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So he's reinforcing this truth, and in doing so, he's pointing again to the cross. The cross that was an instrument of execution. The cross that was a symbol of a slow and torturous death. In fact, when the Roman Empire would crucify someone, uh, the victim would be typically forced to carry the horizontal beam of the cross through the heart of the city to the place of execution. And that was a symbol of their humiliation and the death that they were about to experience. For us, the cross represents atonement. It represents what Jesus did for sinners. It represents the fact that you and I can be forgiven no matter what we've done or where we've come from or what our background is or how broken we are. We can be forgiven through the blood of the cross. And what we're also reminded of is that this cross demands absolute allegiance. It's not to be a halfway faith. It's to be a committed faith. And sometimes people interpret this idea of the cross as their burden to bear in life. So they'll say things like, well, I'm in this relationship and they'll go on about the relationship and then they'll say, it's just my cross to bear. Or they're in a job that they hate and they'll say, well, that's, that's my cross to bear. Or, or maybe they're dealing with some type of physical illness and they say, oh, that's my cross to bear. Let me just tell you, that's not what Jesus meant. That, that's not what he's referring to. This idea of taking up the cross is a call to absolute surrender. And it is very important to note that the verbs in verse 27 are present tense. And the reason that's important is it indicates the ongoing process of discipleship. This is not uh, something that is just in the past, but it's a transforming faith that continues now and until we meet the Lord in eternity, where we're growing in the likeness of Jesus. We're building in our understanding of discipleship. And in some ways, discipleship is very much a path to self-denial, and it even embraces suffering, if necessary, as a part of that life. 
Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10 and 11 says, I want to know Christ. This is Paul and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So what Jesus does is he does not remove the cost of following him. But when he tells us here that we ought to count the cost, he's reminding us that discipleship is costly. That he's not calling us just to be a part of the audience. He's not calling us to be religious consumers. He's not calling us just to be on the fringes. Jesus is calling us to himself. And when Jesus calls us to himself, he is calling us to a life of surrender. But he says you better count the cost in doing it. In verse 27, he's speaking of uh, death even to selfish desires and a willingness to, re- to bear reproach for his name's sake. And then after laying down these requirements for a disciple, Jesus encouraged further counting of the cost. And he gives the illustration of an unfinished tower. And in verse 28 to 30, the reference is on the importance of counting the cost of building a tower. Otherwise, if you don't have enough to finish the tower, when you get to that point, uh, you're going to be ridiculed. Now, towers are more familiar to them in those days. Somebody might have a tower that was overlooking a field that had some value to it, or they had a tower overlooking their home or their property, or maybe there was a tower that was overlooking a, a city, and these towers were intended to be places of protection. But Jesus is just using it as, as an example, and he's saying you need to assess the expense. You need to make a reasoned assessment regarding the commitment of discipleship. And a lack of reflection and resolve may very well lead to ridicule. And I think in this, we sometimes do people a disservice when we're even sharing with them about what the Christian faith is about. And I think there are some people who fall by the wayside because they didn't count the cost. They didn't understand what they were getting into. You understand that we are in a struggle between light and darkness, between good and evil, between heaven and hell. God has already won the victory through his son, but now we're seeing it worked out in real time. And we need to be transparent with people about what it means to follow Christ, that he's not wanting a life that is only going to give him time when it's convenient. He's not wanting a life that's just going to give the right words. He's calling us to himself. And that's to a life of discipleship. There's also illustration of a king and his army, verse 31 and 32. Uh, What king, if he's going to war against another king, is not going to figure out what the opposition is and consider the situation and if he needs to, send out a delegation to get peace before it ever happens. And if he's outnumbered in particular, and I think Jesus is making the point that if you fail to recognize that there will likely be persecution, then you're not going to be able to stand when it comes. And then finally, there's the illustration of the stewardship of resources. You'll note here in verse 33, In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, I want to show you something very important here. Don't miss this. Jesus does not say in this context, sell everything or give everything away. That's not what he says. 
What he says is, renounce. He's calling us to surrender everything that we possess for the glory of God. You recognize everything that you've got, it came from God. The ability that you have to work, that came from God. The health and the strength that you have, that came from God. Every resource that's been entrusted to you, that came from God because he owns it all. And I'm going to say something here that's going to be uncomfortable for some of you, but maybe you need to listen even better because of that. One of the clearest markers of your discipleship is your life stewardship. It's one of the clearest markers. Or to say it even more specifically, one of the clearest indicators of your discipleship is your generosity or your lack thereof. Do you believe that everything you have has come from God? Do you desire to honor God with everything that you have? Then why would there be a disconnect between your resources and your life stewardship? God is the most generous giver of all. When we say, as we've always said, you cannot outgive God, that is so true, whether it be in terms of financial resources or love for others or extending grace to people. We cannot outgive God because God is the most generous of all. And we want to be like Him. The disciple's life is not always easy. C.S. Lewis had it right. He said, The Christian way is different. Uh, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. So hand over the whole natural self and all the desires which you think are innocent as well as the ones that you think are wicked, the whole outfit. Count the cost when you follow Jesus. And then third, you ought to influence others when you follow Jesus. Now, I find it very interesting in our day that there's a lot of talk about influencers. I mean, you hear this, right? There's social media influencers, and there's business influencers, and there's political influencers and influencers this and influencers that. There's thought influencers and on and on it goes. But you know the reality is everybody's an influencer to some degree. You're influencing somebody. You're influencing the people most likely the most, those who are closest to you. You're influencing your family. You're influencing the people that you work with. You're influencing the people in this church. You're influencing the people that you're neighbors with. But the greater question is, what kind of an influencer are you? Is your influence for their good and for the glory of God? And he gives the example in verse 34 and 35 of salt. After all, salt is a good and uh, useful uh, thing that... uh, functions as a seasoning or a preservative or a purification. But here's the deal. Salt is only useful when it has the nature of salt. Now here's the parallel I want to draw and then I'm going to take it further. 
Christians are only useful when they have the nature of Christ. Salt is only useful when it has the nature of salt. You see, most salt at that time came from the evaporated pools around the Dead Sea, and it had gypsum and other impurities in it. Dead Sea salt is a mixture of compounds, and when the water evaporated from the mixture, the sodium chloride would crystallize first and then be removed, and the gypsum and the other impurities would remain, which were, in effect, salt, which had lost its saltiness by way of comparison, therefore being literally useless because it can't fertilize the soil. You throw it on the manure pile, and it's not going to help with that at all. Uh, Bakers in those days would use uh, salt uh, on the floor of their ovens, and the salt would give a a catalytic effect on the burning of the fuel. But as uh, time went on, the uh, effect would wear off, and they would have to throw that out as well. And while salt is salty, it's good because it has a valuable function. Otherwise, it's worthless. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13? He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So the value of salt lies in the effect on its surroundings. And your influence as a disciple of Christ is only as good as its influence on those around you. Now, here's an idea that I think we so desperately need to recover in the church. I think one of the greatest problems that we had toward the end of the 20th century and then entering into this 21st century was somewhat of a privatization of faith, meaning that people, many people in the church compartmentalized their faith and they thought about their faith being only what they did on Sunday or when they gathered together with the church or some exercise of their faith within the context as they saw it. And as a result of that, some people began to think either by default or actually by intention that their faith was limited when in reality As a disciple of Christ, the character of Christ should permeate every area of your life. So it should make a difference in in your home. So let me say it in in a little bit more practical way. If you're unkind to your wife, you're a sorry disciple. If you're not gracious toward your family and leading them in the things of God, you're not a very good example of a disciple. If at work you're not dependable, you can't be counted on, you can't be trusted, you're not a good example of a disciple. And if you're not making a difference with the gospel in the world, then the salt has lost its saltiness. So here's the challenge before us. Don't segment your faith into something that you only do on Sunday. Because if you're segmenting your faith into something that you only do on Sunday, what that says is you're just part of the audience. You're just a religious consumer. You're not a disciple of Jesus. And he is calling you to something far greater. Because that religious audience, that mindset of consuming is temporary. 
But your faith is eternal. And it should be real. And the influence of followers of Jesus should permeate every area of of society. And you know what that does for us? It makes our faith so practical. We're, We're not as discouraged as we would be if we think, well, my faith's over here in a box and I can't open that box up except on Sunday. But when you realize it, it impacts everything, how you love God and how you love people and how you live in the world. It's transformative. And as it's transformative, it's also freeing because then you begin to understand better why and how God created you and the purpose for which he redeemed you. Our lives, our words, our thoughts, our actions, our relationships should all be seasoned with salt so that our lives influence others. You can influence others for the good, for righteousness, when you follow Jesus. Now, I want to say this as I come toward a close. You'll notice here in uh, the last part of this passage in verse 35, let anyone who has ears to hear listen. So I just say to you, you need to listen to what Jesus has to say. You know what Jesus is saying to some of you? You need to be saved. You need to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You need to hear that convicting call of the Holy Spirit that goes forth through the gospel and come to Christ. But for a whole lot of other folks, here's what he's saying. By virtue of these verses we just read. Come off of the periphery. Don't be satisfied with just being a part of the audience. Don't relegate yourself to being a religious consumer. Come to a place of life surrender to Jesus because he's worthy. And I will assure you that if you will come to a place of life surrender to Jesus because he's worthy, He'll not disappoint you. And here's the good news about all of this. Just as salvation is by grace through faith, God will finish the good work in you that he has started. And this is not about try harder, do better. This is about a surrender to the Lord so that you can see what he wants to do in your life. Let's bow our heads together for just a moment. I don't know how God has directed you through his word today, through the words of Jesus. But I believe his word always goes forth with purpose. And the Holy Spirit who inspired it applies it to our hearts and our lives to show us the path to walk in. What is Jesus saying to you through this word? And will you listen? Father, we thank you that you're the greatest giver of all. And the greatest gift that could ever be given is your only son. So we pray that Jesus would be high and lifted up in our lives, in our midst, and in the world through our influence. God, we're grateful that 
this is not something that you're calling us to in our own strength and our own power. But it's in the power of the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. And we pray these things today in his name because we know that he's the one that's worthy. And we pray that our lives would more and more be conformed to him. If there's anyone under the sound of my voice who needs Christ today, or even listening later on, I pray that they would answer that call to salvation, turning from their sins and turning to Jesus by faith. And Lord, we'll thank you for it in advance. We'll give this time of close and response over to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.